Welcome back to the program. How many of us spend vast amounts of time thinking about the universe? Maybe the way Alvy Singer did. He's been depressed. All of a sudden, he can't do anything. Why are you depressed, Alvy? Tell Dr. Flicker. It's something he read. Something he read, huh? The universe is expanding. The universe is expanding? Well, the universe is everything. And if it's expanding, someday it will break apart and that will be the end of everything. What is that your business? He stopped doing his homework. What's the point? What has the universe got to do with it? You're here in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is not expanding. Well, silly as it may seem, Singer was certainly thinking about his place in the universe, a vast and indeed expanding universe in which we humans are but a seemingly small and insignificant part. But in this classic view, are we not giving ourselves enough credit? Perhaps we're more unique than we think. Perhaps we're not all that ordinary, a not-so-ordinary rock in the vast cosmos. Just maybe that classic view needs to be re-examined, and that's what our guest, Caleb Sharp, has done in his new book, The Copernicus Complex. Caleb Scharf is the director of Multidisciplinary Astrobiology Center at Columbia University, the author of the previous book, Gravity's Engine, and it is my pleasure to welcome Caleb Sharp to this program to talk about his newest work, The Copernicus Complex, Our Cosmic Significance in a Universe of Planets and Probabilities. Caleb, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, my, my great pleasure. It's great to have you here. I want to talk first about this kind of classic view of our real insignificance in the vast universe. Talk a little about that. Yes, so, so this is something that I think really was seeded by Copernicus himself. Copernicus displaced the Earth from the center of existence and said that the mechanics of the solar system involved putting the sun at the center. And this really started the idea of what's become known as cosmic mediocrity. We live in a very, very large universe that has no true center, um, and that's something that also emerged out of Einstein's insights to the nature of the universe. And there are hundreds of billions of galaxies, and those galaxies each contain maybe several hundred billion stars, and we now know that there are planets around those stars, and we're on one of them. And so we have this, this sense that we are truly a speck on a speck on a speck in a vast cavern of, of space and time. And so this is really this, this sense of insignificance, this sense of cosmic mediocrity. Uh, so it, it tracks back to um, the ideas of Copernicus. But it, of course, also raises new questions uh, about whether we're alone or not in, in all of this. And when we think about whether or not we are alone, in some ways that doesn't change the additional consideration of the uniqueness of our significance in this vast cosmos. Yes, I think that's right. And this is really a, a question that has bubbled up into, into science itself. And right now, the, the interesting thing is that, on the one hand, we have plenty of evidence for this cosmic mediocrity. But we also, when we examine the conditions, our circumstances, uh, the, the history of life on Earth, the configuration of our solar system, we compare it to other solar systems that we now know exist, uh, we begin to see that there's evidence to suggest that actually we live in a place that's somewhat unusual. 
And the interesting question is, is that degree of unusualness connected to our existence here? Is this something that sets the conditions for life and perhaps makes us very rare, um, certainly makes complex life like humans very rare, and maybe it makes life anywhere in the universe very rare. So, so these questions of being important or not important to the universe are actually still right at the forefront of modern science. And in many ways, the more modern science pushes forward and we begin to understand internally what makes us so unique, particularly from a biological perspective, and that we continue on the other side to reach further and further out into the universe, we continue to see on both sides the increased uniqueness of of human life as we know it. Yes, I think that's true. And obviously, this is a central piece of my book, is trying to understand how do we still reconcile uh, cosmic mediocrity with this this pattern that we're seeing that many things had to align perfectly in order for us to, to be here um, and that there are certain circumstances that exist here that exist in perhaps very few other places in the universe and biology is certainly one of those things. If you look at the history of living uh, organisms uh, for the last four billion years, on the Earth, uh, you can point to various steps that if they hadn't happened, uh, we wouldn't be here. And it's not just us, it's cows, it's chickens, it's any sort of complex, complex life. And so, yes, this is, this is the conundrum. Um, on the one hand, scientifically, it makes sense to think of us as insignificant, unimportant, not central to anything. On the other hand, we have to reconcile that with, with this other notion. And my personal conclusion is that we may be unique but not exceptional. And that means that the pathway to organisms like us may always produce something different, no matter whether it's happening here or it's happening around Alpha Centauri or it's happening in another galaxy. And that's very interesting because it, it's, it, it helps resolve this, this apparent conflict um, in evidence, but it also points to life as perhaps being a far more diverse phenomenon than we expected. More diverse, but not necessarily as intelligent. I mean, that's the other part of this equation, the degree to which any particular kind of life has the intelligence that we bring to it and how other life forms may be, as you say, different and maybe less and, and certainly possibly more intelligent, but that's one of the unique aspects of it, it seems. It is, and and this is it's a tricky problem for a scientist like myself, and it's a fascinating problem because, again, we, we as scientists, we're, we're brought up to kind of pretend that there's nothing special about us. Um, and, and there's good rational reasons for that. But yes, it's true. If you look at the history of life on Earth, as far as we know, human beings are a singular event. There has not been anything like us before. Now, that may be telling us that uh, intelligence is not a particularly good survival strategy. <laughs> it's conceivable that being intelligent comes with other problems, and we just haven't had time to see how that plays out. Perhaps we're seeing hints of it in the way in which we're, 
uh, technology, our machines, our use of energy is, is altering the, the very environment that we need to survive. But we don't know for sure. So I think, yes, intelligence, when you bring intelligent, intelligence into the equation, things get really difficult really fast. And we also have to ask whether our type of intelligence has equivalent types, of, whether there are equivalent types of intelligence that are equally sophisticated, but just very, very different. How then does this, in your view, shape our understanding of our place in the world? How should we be thinking about that, and what significance should we be giving it? <laughs> I, I think part of what I conclude by, by sifting through all the evidence is is really a, a confirmation of the idea that we are perhaps a fleeting moment. We're a fleeting moment in the history of this planet. We're a fleeting moment in the history of life. It, but the difference between us and you know, a chicken or a dinosaur is that we do have this capacity to make that observation, to understand that we could be a fleeting moment. So we actually have the capacity to do something about this. And uh, that, that may be unique in the last four billion years of, of life on this planet. And so, so this is very interesting. This leaves us in a place where we have a choice about our cosmic significance. We have a choice about uh, sort of cheating the equation in a sense that we don't need to be a fleeting moment in the evolution of life on this planet or indeed on a planet which has a finite lifespan. In, in a billion years' time, the Earth will no longer be able to sustain look at water because our sun will have become brighter and brighter. Will we be here in a billion years' time? It's not clear, but we have some choice about directing uh, what, what species comes after us, what we evolve into. I think that's a really important point to remember because it, it both says that we're precious, we're something that we need to take uh, great care of, but also we have the opportunity, we have the ability to do something very different that, that life has never done before um, on this planet, which is determine our own significance, our own future. But of course, that's a two-edged sword because along with that self-awareness and all the things that you're talking about that come with that, we also have, as a result of our intelligence, the ability to truly destroy life as we know it on the planet. <laughs> That's absolutely right. And, and this also speaks to a very interesting problem that scientists have been asking for a while, which is if life like us, intelligent technological life, is not incredibly rare, then where is it? Because over the age, not just of our um, solar system, but of the galaxy as a whole, which is about 10 billion years old. If other life similarly sophisticated to us emerges, it ought to have spread everywhere by now. And this is a problem known as the Fermi paradox. Where is everyone? And one solution to that is, and it's a pretty sobering solution, is that intelligent life wipes itself out. And that's why we don't see it all over the place. It never gets that far. It never becomes uh, interstellar. It never becomes an interstellar civilization. And the question is, are we on the verge of failing, or have we perhaps passed through the critical point already? Are we going to be the first interstellar civilization in, in this galaxy? 
but yes, our, our intelligence definitely raises the possibility of self-destruction. Is there any reason? I mean, what is the argument that can be made to say that we're going to be the first civilization to get past that that tipping point? (laughs) Well, I think there is a way we could perhaps begin to evaluate that, and that's to do with our search for life elsewhere, uh, both in our solar system and on other planets. Because if we find that life only makes it to a certain place in terms of sophistication. Maybe it it remains as microbes everywhere. Maybe there's just pond slime on other planets. And then there's us. That might suggest that we somehow passed through a barrier that has prevented life elsewhere from becoming more sophisticated, from evolution propelling it to a greater complexity. And that would be a positive um, piece of news, and it would suggest that we at least have the opportunity to become that interstellar civilization. So it's closely linked to the modern search for life elsewhere in the universe, which is very exciting. What about the the very human-centric view that that some people take that, that really argues that we are powerfully unique and that we are this, this very special situation? What consequence does that have, looking at it from from really the extreme opposite point of view? Well, I think that that's a those sort of arguments are are difficult to make, and I actually think that they are often based on a slight misinterpretation of how we make inferences about things. Mm-hmm. And I, I I like to use a, an example sometimes of of a lottery. Uh, if, if I buy a lottery ticket and I win what will probably happen is I'll start to think about all the events that took place that led me to buy that lottery ticket on that day. And I'll think to myself, that's incredibly unlikely for me to have done this. You know, maybe it was I read something in the newspaper in the morning or I tripped over a cat in the morning or I I had some idea that, that propelled me to buy a lottery ticket. But, of course, the thing is, anyone who wins a lottery ticket is going to be having those same discussions with themselves. They're going to look at a different set of peculiar circumstances that led them to that lottery ticket. And I think this question of life on Earth being incredibly rare as a cosmic thing may be influenced a bit by that kind of interpretation, looking back at all the things that had to line up for us to exist. My personal feeling is we just don't know yet, but it could be that life elsewhere is having the same thoughts. They're looking back at their own biological history and the history of their planets and saying, hey, you know, we're really unlikely. <laughs> so perhaps we're incredibly rare in the, in the cosmos. So it's, it's a thorny problem. And I think this is one reason why uh, scientists like myself are so excited right now because we're at a point where our technology is letting us reach out to the universe and really ask the question properly. Is there life out there? Can we find evidence of other life? That will resolve all of this. When we look at it in a more internal way, when we take the cosmology away and look at it particularly with respect to the biology and look at the complexity of the biology, what does that begin to inform about this? Well, I think there are some very interesting aspects to that that actually in some ways make us feel certainly on a personal level, less significant. For example, we now understand that 
humans, like any large multicellular species, carries around very large microbial components. Um, there are roughly 10 times more bacterial cells and, and this other single cell organism called archaea than our own cells. We carry around as adult humans maybe about two pounds worth of microbial life. And there are more pieces of useful genetic information in that microbial life than in us. And in fact, we may be more like uh, walking cruise ships for microbes. <laughs> you could almost consider that over billions of years, microbial life, things like bacteria, has, in a sense, engineered larger creatures like us to be convenient environments, to be convenient habitats. It's, it's, a, it's one way to survive. It's part of natural selection. And that's kind of disturbing. That really, that really hurts our feelings <laughs> um, that, because that says that everything we think we are, our, our sense of self, um, may need some revision. And, of course, the interesting thing about it is that that may be a universal rule. It's possible that life anywhere follows this pattern and that complicated, intelligent thinking creatures are really just the outcome of the, the evolutionary needs of simpler organisms, things like bacteria. Uh, but that's, that's really pretty disturbing. Disturbing in what sense? Well, I think it's disturbing because it, it takes away some sense of control. Uh, for example, the, the microbiome that humans have is intimately related to our biochemistry. It's intimately related to the, the enzymes and the, the hormones and the, and the chemicals that are sluicing around our system. And at that level, it's influencing individual personality. It's perhaps influencing our capacity to be intelligent in the first place. Uh, it, it's as if uh, evolution and, and microbial life has has found a way to to make these these creatures that that will go off and look for food and be very clever and build places to store food and to to be more efficient in in terms of uh, finding resources that not just they need but their microbial passengers need. So I think that's that's where it becomes kind of personal and disturbing is. You know, a sense of self is a little bit shaken by that, I think. One of the interesting things about this is the way in which part the, the conversation rests on this very narrow blade between science and cosmology on the one hand and philosophy and, 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 and sort of introspection on the other. And that balance is, is so interesting in this, this approach. It is, and it, it's something, I, obviously, I'm not a philosopher, so I have to be careful. I, I can't um, make too many deep philosophical <laughs> statements, but I, I think it does also, it speaks to scientists because it, it's to do with how we make our judgments of theories as well. It's how we are perhaps blinkered in some ways. Uh, as you say, it, it, it's this interesting balance point between uh, things like cosmology and more sort of parochial uh, observation about our, our universe. And there are issues there. We don't know, for example, that we're not missing something big about cosmology because of where we are in terms of our location in the universe and because of the time at which we exist, the cosmic time at which we exist. And that, that borders on a philosophical question, but it's also a very practical issue. Uh, and this is something that 
rear its head in thinking about the nature of life and whether or not we're special or significant on a grand scale. It's possible we live in a place and a cosmic time where we could be somewhat misled about the, the deeper nature of reality. And that's, that's tricky, and we have to be careful about that. We have to ask those questions. Are we being misled, and is there any way that we could tell if we were being misled? Um, so, yes, yeah, so th- th- this, this all comes up against some really deep and interesting questions in both science and philosophy. Right. The other part of it is that the exploration, the scientific exploration, doesn't come without a cost. And in many ways, our philosophical approach to it, our intellectual approach to it, shapes our priorities that really determine, to some extent, the degree and the direction to which we continue to explore. Absolutely. I think uh, our willingness to spend considerable resources, for example, to put humans into space, to maybe take humans to Mars or or beyond, you know, we you could imagine a situation where our our general philosophy, uh, our, our cultural um, uh, cultural philosophy was different than it is today. Um, and if I look back at in history, where there have been periods of great exploration and expansion, even when the, the Europeans came to America, uh, there was this sense that it was a frontier. Now, of course, it wasn't really because there were already people here, but yeah, <laughs> this was the perspective. And it encouraged this enormous push and this patient. Uh, we're sort of lacking that at the moment in terms of looking beyond the Earth. So it absolutely impacts our, our, uh, the, the practicalities of sources to go and explore. And, you know, it's a narrow perspective in some ways. I know that many people, people like Elon Musk, for example, feel that colonizing somewhere like Mars isn't just about the exploration. It's about a backup plan for our species. Mm. (laughs) If you don't get off-world at some point soon, uh, things could start to go wrong, and that would be the end of humans. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting that our philosophy has been much more uh, navel-gazing for Mm. a while now. It's interesting to look historically at periods when we have been much more introspective about this and then other periods where we've been much more willing to look out at some of these things. And and I don't know what the broader cycle of that is, but clearly we do go through different spurts at different historical times. I think that's true, and I think that's a very good observation. Um, yeah, clearly uh, in the period between the ancient Greeks and someone like Copernicus, uh, it, it was all pretty narrow. The the vision of existence and uh, what was out there was very narrow, and people weren't looking out to the cosmos in the same way. I mean, obviously, people noticed what was in the sky, but they didn't question it in the same way as people like Copernicus or Galileo um, right after him. And uh, yes, and there have been periods actually of greater exuberance than today. If you go back to really just the, the 1800s, um, certainly in Western Europe, there was enormous enthusiasm among many scientists uh, for the idea of there being life absolutely everywhere. And people were looking through their telescopes and imagining that they were seeing uh, you know, trees growing on the moon and perhaps there were things on Mars and so on. And there was a, a sense of enthusiasm that we could perhaps get there. 
this obviously has spawned some of the earliest uh, modern science fiction, the notion of a journey to the moon, <laughs> the notion of war with a, a civilization on Mars. And, and then it, it's quietened down. And the interesting thing is we've had the space age. And I think uh, pretty quickly after the space age, after the, the, the Apollo landings, uh, people turned inwards again. And obviously, there were there was turmoil here. There were wars. There were economic problems. Uh, the interesting thing is how quickly we can switch our attention. Um, yet these are such enormous, big, big questions and big matters. So, yes, there's, there's clearly something built into our uh, our being from through natural selection, our, our instinct. That, that does this with us. And so that, that's something we have to try to think a little harder about. In 50 years, we've gone from wanting to explore the cosmos to make a bigger iPhone. I'm not sure that's progress or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is true, although I, I, I feel optimistic because I think yes, our motivation for making something like an iPhone may not be uh, that grandiose, but that technological surge, the, the, the inventiveness that goes into mm-hmm. that, does have uh, impact on what we can then do in terms of looking out to the universe, in terms of surveying the universe, and perhaps setting foot a little further out into the cosmos. So I, I, I have optimism. I, I wouldn't say the iPhone will save humanity, but it may, it may help along the way. Caleb Scharf, the book is The Copernicus Complex, Our Cosmic Significance in a Universe of Planets and Probabilities. Caleb, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 